I'm sure you have many times asked yourself what's wrong with the church, and I'm not thinking specifically of this church, although you, you can find many things wrong with us. I'm thinking of the church at large. Jesus said the uh, highest strategies of hell shall not prevail against his church. That's what he meant when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And yet, uh, it would appear that that's not so. As you look around, you see a, a great deal of defection from the faith on the part of many churches, churches that have, that have been established as mainline Bible-teaching churches seem to be drifting away from that position. Church splits occur frequently. And uh, in general... As you view the church, it does not seem to be doing the job. If you were a part of the counterculture a few years back, then you probably may have gone through a period of time when you rejected the established church and experimented with other forms. Many of us, I think, were part of that sort of thing, and we saw all sorts of structures being put together during those years to try to make the church what it ought to be. And yet it's my conviction that it's not the form that needs correction so much as it's the heart of the matter. Jesus said, the church is intended to be the salt of the earth. Now in those days, salt was used as a preservative, as you know. They didn't have refrigeration, and so they preserved their meats with salt. Salt, therefore, was designed to arrest the spread of corruption. The purpose of the church is to be righteous in the world, to institute righteousness and maintain righteousness in the world. The church, I believe, is really the secret government of the universe. Paul describes it as the ground and the pillar of the truth. Though we may be small numerically, the church can have tremendous impact far beyond its numerical value if we're righteous. If we're godlike in the world, that's what it means to be salty. But Jesus said if we lose that saltiness, we're good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And for myself, I think that's what's happening. I do not believe that uh, the church is going to collapse. Jesus assured us that that's not the case. But I do believe that we need to do an agonizing reappraisal from time to time and determine if we are what God says we are to be. Because if we are not, we have no value whatever in the world. Jesus' statement that uh, will be trampled underfoot, I think, describes the condition we find ourselves in the world, where most of the secular world really has no use for the church. I think that's why we're losing many of the privileges that we enjoyed before. Our tax-exempt status, for instance, is not a right that we have. It's a privilege granted to us by our government because there was a time when the church had tremendous social significance. But we're losing a lot of that significance, and therefore I think we're good for nothing. And that's why we're being treated in that, in that manner. And so I think we need to critically assess ourselves from time to time and discover what we're about. The purpose of the church is not to hold meetings. It's to 
display the invisible character of Christ to the world, to be righteous by life and by witness. Now, what we've been learning in 1 Corinthians corresponds to uh, this uh, commission. We've been discovering what it means to be salty. And we want to continue in our studies in 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, where Paul talks further about church order. You probably noticed a couple of weeks ago when we came to chapter 11 that there was a decided shift in topic. Rather than dealing with personal matters, moral, ethical questions, Paul begins to talk about the church and how the church functions. And then in chapter 12, we have a chapter that deals with spiritual gifts or the use of our God-given abilities within the body of Christ. Now, you'll remember that this book was written in response to a letter which came from the church in Corinth. And here the issue is what Paul calls spirituals. This little phrase, now concerning something, brethren, tips us off to the fact that here Paul is, is answering, specifically answering a question that the Corinthian church had raised. We found that phrase a number of times in 1 Corinthians, and it, it occurs here. So they had, they had written to Paul asking a question, which Paul is going to answer in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Now you'll notice in most translations that the word gifts is in italics, which means that it doesn't occur in Paul's original letter. What Paul wrote was now concerning spirituals, just a plural adjective without any noun. And the translators have supplied gifts in order to help us make some sense out of the phrase. But I think they may have missed it here. Because Paul's concern is not so much with spiritual gifts as it is at this point, as it is with the way the Spirit of God works. And you'll notice as we read through the chapter, the Holy Spirit is the premier figure. His name occurs over and over again. And it's his ministry that Paul is concerned about. And what he wants us to know from this passage is two things. The Spirit of God leads us into a unity of experience, but different expressions of that experience. Now, the first three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, describe that common experience, and the verses 4 through 11, the varieties of experience that flow out of that, uh, the varieties of expression, rather, that flow out of that one experience. Now let's read, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning spiritual things, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. That's always uh, Paul's uh, expression when he has something to say that's extremely important. We've seen that phrase occur a number of times in the book of 1 Corinthians. So this is important. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now what he's doing in these three verses is contrasting the experience that they had before as pagans in the secular world, in the world without God, and their experience now as Christians. And uh, he describes their life as a non-Christian as being led in various directions and without ultimate purpose. He says you were led. He doesn't tell us who led them. It could be various philosophies or 
or ideas that come out of the world, or it could be some evil spirit that led them. We're simply not told who was the leader, but someone was leading them astray. And ultimately, every path led to dumb idols. Now, that term dumb idol is a phrase that occurs over and over again in the Old Testament for, well, to describe the unresponsiveness of idols. Idols are dumb. They don't speak. They don't give any comfort. They don't encourage you. They don't help you. They don't give you counsel. They don't give you wisdom. They just stand there. And Paul says that every, every course ultimately led to dumb idols. At the end of every route is a blind alley. That's what he's saying. And that's, that's a very apt description of the world without Jesus Christ. And many of, of you can remember what life was like then trying this philosophy and that idea, running down this course, trying to find something that would satisfy you. But everything ultimately is unsatisfying. Or even if you arrive, even if you make your destination, it doesn't fill you up. That's what someone has called destination sickness. You arrive and you have everything you want, but you don't want anything you have. And many of you have, have been there. We know what it's like. Simply. That's what causes the 40-year itch. That's why men change jobs without good reason, simply because they're bored and dissatisfied and unhappy. And that's life without Christ. But uh, Paul contrasts with that the life that we have in Christ, and he tells us that the function of the Spirit of God is to lead people toward one purpose, and that's to make Jesus Christ Lord. You know, Note how he puts it. No one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's not so concerned here about unity of confession. He doesn't care what we say. That's not the point. It's what we do. The Spirit of God increasingly brings us under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's our common experience. That's what, that's what his function is, to make Christ increasingly Lord in our life. Now, all of you, I'm sure, have seen Campus Crusades, a very helpful illustration. The circle with the throne in the center, with ego on the throne, and uh, Christ knocks at the door of our heart, and we open the door and let him in and dethrone ourselves. Ego comes off of the throne, and, and Christ comes to live on the throne of our life, and it's a very helpful illustration of that of that truth but uh, if i can expand on it a bit i like to see it um, see my life as a castle maybe that's one of my delusions of grandeur but uh, i always think of a castle and every castle has a throne room and uh, it's to that room that christ comes and knocks on the door and i open the door of the throne room and i and I admit him to that room, and I dethrone myself, and I put Christ on the throne of my life. That's what it means to become a Christian. But the fact is, there are hundreds of rooms in my castle, and every room has a little throne. And I see you smiling, because I think you identify. Uh, I find that, uh, that my life is divided up into many compartments. My uh, uh, recreational life, my marriage, my relationship with my children, your vocation, my vocation, 
your sex life, your thought life. Life is divided into an infinite number of compartments. And in each of those rooms, there's a throne. And what I've discovered is that the Lord not only takes up occupancy of the throne room, he goes around to every little room and starts knocking. And I can't tell you which room he's going to knock on in your life, but I know which one he's knocking on in my life right now. And the process never seems to end, and he's relentless. <laughs> he just won't leave you alone. He, he comes to a portion of, well, I'll speak of myself, he comes to a portion of my life where the door is barred, and he just stands out there and knocks until I let him in. And as sooner or later, I have to let him in because I've yielded the throne room, you see. And I think that's what it means to be a Christian. There must be some measure of the Lordship of Christ our recognition that he is king of our life and he begins to lead us into a unity of, of experience. Christ becomes Lord in, in more and more areas of our life. Now you see, that's what results in unity in the body. Because if we're all under the lordship of Christ, then we'll be able to resolve conflicts and difficulties, differences among ourselves. If someone wrongs you, they do some terrible thing to you. How do you resolve a problem like that? Well, you discover what Jesus said and obey. He said, forgive them. How many times? 490 times, or in effect, an infinite number of times. Or suppose someone does something wrong. They do some foolish thing. It's hurtful to you or your family. What do you do? Well, what did Jesus say to do? Well, he said, go to the brother who's wrong. To him directly, don't gossip about, don't stir up trouble and and, uh, and work around behind the scenes, go directly to the brother. So you see, as we let Christ assert his lordship in every area of our life, we're able to resolve problems, and not only are we more fulfilled and satisfied as individuals, but as a church we begin to be more fulfilled. And we experience the oneness that, that God has given to us in Christ, that oneness though it's there spiritually, has to be worked out by obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now that's where we begin, with a unity of experience. But Paul goes on to tell us that we're different. Different is not wrong. It's just different. God didn't cut us out of human flesh with a cookie cutter. There's infinite variety. As I look out there at you, some are tall, some are short, and some are, uh, well, <laughs> some of you have hair, some of you don't, and uh, we're all different. It's not wrong, it's just different. And that's Paul's point in the verses that follow. Now, there are varieties of gifts. The word variety simply means different. There are different gifts, but the same spirit. And there are different ministries in the same Lord. And there are different effects or results. But the same God who works all things in all people. Now you'll notice that the Godhead works in concert here. They're, uh, they're united. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. The Lord Jesus places people in ministry. And God is the one who empowers everyone. So they... They work together. And Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives these supernatural capacities to the members of the body of Christ. Now, we need to define these terms. 
The word gifts that he refers to here is the word that uh, means a spiritual gift, a graciously given gift from the Spirit of God. Now, these gifts are not to be confused with natural talent. He's not talking here about the ability to run fast or, or sing beautifully or play the piano beautifully. These are not natural talents. These are supernatural capacities that are given to serve the needs of the body of Christ. Now, we're not told when those gifts are given. We can assume that they're given when the Holy Spirit is given, and that's at the point of salvation, but we simply don't know. All we know is that the Spirit of God has given to every believer one capacity to serve the needs of the body of Christ. In other words, no one was behind the door when the gifts were passed out. Everyone has a gift. You'll notice in verse 7, he says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The word manifestation of the Spirit is simply another word for spiritual gift. To each one, every one of you sitting out there has at least one spiritual gift, one manifestation of the Spirit, with which you are to serve the common good of the body of Christ, and to build one another up, encourage one another. And then in verse 11, we're told that one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he will. Now, many of us struggle at times, I think, with feelings of worth. And uh, we wonder what we can do to be valuable in the body of Christ. We think unless we can be up front teaching, or unless we can be serving in some visible way, then we have, we have no function in the body. But that's not so. Paul says that every one of you has some capacity to serve the needs of the body. Now, secondly, we're told in verse 5 that there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. Now, here he's talking about the specific sphere of service in which you use your gift. It may be with children or with teenagers or with senior citizens, or servicemen, or high school kids, or junior high people. There is a special area of ministry, a different area of ministry, in which you can use that gift. And the Lord Jesus is the one who places individuals within that, that place of ministry. It also means that there are different perspectives on ministry. There are different ways of, of looking at our service. There is Campus Crusade for Christ and their way of approaching a ministry and their desire to evangelize the world within this generation. And then there's InterVarsity Christian Fellowship with their emphasis upon Bible study and the need to build solidly and on, on the right base. And there is Bible Study Fellowship. And there is the Navigators. And there's Young Life Campaign. And there's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And you see, there's an infinite variety of ministries. Now, we're wrong if we think that any one ministry is the answer to everyone's needs, because that's simply not so. But we're also wrong to discredit any ministry, assuming that it's based, it's biblically based. It's wrong to discredit any ministry simply because they do it differently than we do, because different is not wrong. It's just different. That's all. And we can learn from one another. 
Have you ever heard anyone say, why doesn't pastor so-and-so do like so-and-so does? Well, that's because there are different ministries. Everyone is different. And it takes all of the saints working together to cause the body to grow up. Paul says it's with all the saints that you know the height and the depth and the breadth and all the dimensions of the love of God. In other words, no one believer has all the knowledge that's necessary to bring you to completion in Christ. So it's wrong to follow one man exclusively or to insist that everyone follow one man exclusively. We need the varieties of gifts and ministries that Paul is describing for us here. And then finally, Paul says in verse 6, there are varieties of results. C.S. Lewis says, you never can tell about God. And the older I get, the more convinced I am that he's right. You never know what God's going to do next. We can plan a meeting and we can be assured of results because we have given it the best possible planning and brought the best minds to bear on this uh, particular project and discover that the results are not what we anticipated because God is sovereign. He has the right to do as he pleases. I'll, I'll never forget one of my early experiences working with, with, uh, with university students. We were going to go into a fraternity house and this was the key fraternity house on the campus. And so we spent weeks praying for this meeting and bringing together a group of students that we thought could could have a real impact on this uh, house. Two or three students were going to share their testimonies and I was going to share the gospel. And, and uh, this was a house full of athletes and we thought this was the house to reach. And we got a number of people to pray for us. And it just happened that afternoon that house had won the uh, intramural, intramural football championship. And when we got there, about two-thirds of the guys in the house were drunk. And all through the meeting, they were throwing pints of milk from one side of the room to the other, and a couple of guys passed out and had to be dragged out of the meeting. And it was a fiasco. A couple of guys got up and walked out. Nobody seemed particularly interested. And we wondered, what's going on here? But you see, we didn't understand that God has the right to do with us as he pleases and the results belong to him. Our responsibility is to be faithful, to use our gifts, to walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God and leave the results with him. Let him take the consequences. He's, he's the Lord who produces the results. So there are, there are differences within the body of Christ, though we are united in, under his lordship. And then in verse 7 and 8, he expands on the idea of gifts. And he gives us a list of manifestations of the Spirit, beginning with verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he will. And there are four places in the New Testament where we're given a list of, of gifts. There are actually two lists here in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll talk about the second list next week. There's another list in Romans 12, Another one in Ephesians 4, and a fourth in Ephesians, in 1 Peter 4. And if, as you read through that enumeration of, of gifts, the thing that strikes you is that in no place do they correspond. They're all different. 
Which leads me to believe that this, these lists of gifts are not exhaustive, they're simply suggestive. The Spirit of God is infinitely creative. You never know what He's going to do next. The most predictable thing about the Spirit of God is that He is utterly predictable. And while there are general categories of gifts, there are, there are shades and applications of gifts that exceed our wildest dreams. I think all Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 12 is giving us what can be considered a sample of the kinds of things that the Spirit of God does. In 1 Peter 4, he gives us two general categories. There are speaking gifts and serving gifts, and I think all the gifts can be uh, can be explained in terms of one, of the, one or the other of those two categories. But here, he gives us a suggestive list. There is the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Now, I don't think those gifts any longer exist in the church. I think what we have today in Scripture is the word of wisdom and knowledge. The way those terms are used throughout the New Testament, uh, they are always laid alongside supernatural gifts, the gifts of prophecy and revelation. Those are revelatory gifts. It's the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. The, the early churches, you know, didn't gather as we do in rows like, like this and, and hear from some teacher up front. They gathered and God would speak to a prophet and he would stand and he would, he would speak a word of revelation, an utterance of knowledge or of wisdom. Wisdom has to do with the more practical aspects of, of Christian life. Wisdom is skill in living. It's the capacity to take truth and apply it in very specific ways to life. And someone would stand and, and he would utter by revelation a word of wisdom. And someone else would stand and utter a word of knowledge. That is, he would reveal a fact about God that was not revealed anywhere else in, in Scripture. But when the New Testament was completed, there was no need or those revelatory gifts any longer because they're here in the New Testament. And probably those gifts today are, are, are uh, they express themselves in the gifts of counseling and teaching and exhortation where we take the Word of God and we use it to apply to a specific situation or we reveal some fact about life, some of these great mysteries, secrets about life that we would not know apart from Revelation. And when the New Testament was completed, then those gifts faded away. 